Good morning, church. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to continue this conversation that we have sung about, that we have prayed about, as we focus upon the cross of Christ Jesus through the preaching of His Word. In Galatians chapter 6 this morning, Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18, it is Paul's conclusion to the church at Galatia. Paul's conclusion to this wonderful epistle. He's writing to various churches in the region of Galatia. He comes now in verses 11 through 18 to bring it to a conclusion. I don't want that to be something that that throws you off. We don't have much patience with conclusions within our culture. I don't know the last time you've been to a continuing education presentation within a work environment, but as soon as as a break is occurring for lunch or for dinner, and the presenter says, now, and in conclusion, what happens? Everybody checks out. Everybody begins to jostle for their keys, picks up, pick up their phone to text, where are we going to go eat? I mean, people, people are, are looking for the nearest exit with those signifiers. And now, in conclusion, you want to torpedo a sermon, say, and now, in conclusion, people begin to check out. They begin to think to themselves, now he said, now in conclusion, and he's still talking for the last 15 minutes here. What does that even mean here? So uh, I I tell you, it it is something in our culture we don't have a whole lot of patience for, and now in conclusion. Paul doesn't say, now in conclusion. We we only really know it's the conclusion because he does give us a signifier that something is changing here by verse 11 of Galatians chapter 6, where he says, see with what large hands or excuse me, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Again, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. What in the world is Paul talking about here? Well, at first he's telling us this isn't skimmable material. This isn't skippable material here. I'm writing this with my own hand, he says. When you go outside of the letters of Paul, one of the things that you can understand about the Greco-Roman world and letter writing in that world is that oftentimes they utilized literary secretaries, literary assistants. So you have uh, in Cicero's writings, you would have him dictating and someone else writing it. Even in Paul's letters, Paul utilizes that uh, uh, custom of, of that day. You have someone like Timothy, who we know for sure was that literary assistant for letters like Philippians and Colossians. And so as Paul is writing this through the dictation of the letter to the churches of Galatia, he takes the reed pen and he takes it in his own hands and he, he writes and he says, look with the large letters that I'm writing here. Now for centuries, scholars have sort of speculated, what, what's going on with these large letters here? Uh, some, some would say Paul had eyesight issues and that this is showing up. Others would say that he has suffered so much for the cause of Christ, what he's going to reference in verse 17, that he, he doesn't have the ability and the precision with his own hand to write in, in small letters. So he must write because he doesn't have the dexterity in his fingers to be able to write that. Now, most scholars would say that it's neither of those things. Most scholars would say what Paul is doing here is he's, he's signing his own signature. He, he, is, he is promoting the authenticity of this letter. People in the region of Galatia are, are questioning his apostleship. And so he is saying, nah, I, I wrote this letter. And see with my large letters here what I'm writing to you in my own hand. It's Paul's way of, of putting things in bold is what it is. He doesn't have the ability to get on a word processor and put things in italics. He 
He doesn't have the ability to, to bold something. When you get an email and everything's in all caps, that usually means what? I'm screaming at you through this. Uh, Paul has an intensity of how he is going to end this letter. It's really unique. First letter that Paul has written is here, the letter to the Galatians. Oftentimes, when you look at his other letters, he, he lands the plane rather gently. He says, remember this person, remember this person. You have this laundry list of people to greet. None of that here. There's a caustic nature to Paul's conclusion. He, he is driving home the prevailing themes that he has championed for, throughout the entire letter. And he brings it to this crystal precision in these verses here. We'll just read the verses with me. Verse 12 through verse 18. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. He says, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus, the grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Three truths that bring this letter to a conclusion here. The first truth that we see in our study of God's Word is that our activity for God doesn't ensure a saving relationship with God. Our activity for God doesn't ensure a saving relationship with God. This is the prevailing major theme of the entire book of Galatians. And he brings it back as he talks about how there are those who would want to force you to be circumcised. Why? For a good showing in the flesh. The false teachers that had infiltrated the ranks of the churches in Galatia, they were motivated by pride, sort of a religious contest. How many people can be on our team? So they force them to be circumcised, to, to uh, have a good showing in the flesh. Also, Paul says in these passages here that the false teachers are motivated not only by pride, but by fear. That some felt that they might be persecuted if they don't preach this message here. That it is not Christ alone that saves us, but Christ plus circumcision. Christ plus the keeping of the works of the law here. So pride and fear come together in, in this uh, unholy motivation of these false teachers. And Paul says in verse 13, listen, even if you kept the law, you cannot perfectly keep the law. Even if you're circumcised, it's foolish to think that you're going to put your hope and your activity. No, what is the central theme of Galatians? The central theme is that we are not saved by the keeping of the works of the law, but we are saved through grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ work alone. Grace, faith alone, Christ alone. This is what Paul is hammering for us to hear, not only in the first century world, but he's hammering down for us to be able to hear in this world. And what Paul is saying for us is that even if you keep the law, you can't keep it perfectly. But guess what? You don't have to because there is one who has perfectly kept the law. So don't boast in your flesh boast in him. Any boasting in what you've done is empty boasting. It's fool's gold, is what Paul's saying. 
Paul is saying all this activity doesn't always equal intimacy. Some of you are familiar with Ira Glass. You're familiar with the National Public Radio broadcast called This American Life. It's a wonderful podcast. A lot of different uh, shows and different emphases on a weekly basis, but one that struck me a few years ago was called Remember When. Ira Glass starts with a senior in high school who happens to be the editor-in-chief of her yearbook, and she's getting back all of the yearbook proofs, and she realizes a problem. She realizes that one person, Sam Milnick, Sam Milnick has uh, posed in all of these club pictures that he doesn't belong in. So Sam Milnick, the senior in high school, ends up in over 20 club pictures. You know how many of those clubs he belonged to? Zero. And here's this editor-in-chief wondering, do I put Sam's name? But he had snuck out of class enough, and he ends up, well, he ends up in all of these club pictures. He ends up in the Mood for Food Club. He ended up in that picture. That's the cooking club. He, he ended up in the Military History Club. He ended up in the Lawn Sports Club, which is really interesting. What high school has a Lawn Sports Club? Maybe I'm just missing that. Somebody will tell me. The Out of the Box Club, Sam Milnick's in it. He's in the Photo Club. Sam Milnick made that club picture over 20 clubs that Sam Milnick posed for. He's not a member of a single one of them. You go back to the index of that yearbook, all the kids' names are listed, and beside the kids' names are the page numbers of all the pictures that they're in. Sam Milnick has three lines of page numbers by his name. I mean, this is Hall of Fame imposter work, and all of us thinking about this can think, I mean, you, you almost have to applaud. Sam. You want to meet Sam, don't you? Some of you were Sam in high school. Some of you aspire to be Sam in high school. So one of the things we see about this, I mean, we can laugh about this. This is sort of silly. This is high school pranks and all those kinds of things. But I tell you, if you think about it spiritually, if you think about it spiritually here, there is something that is far more serious for us to consider as we think of spiritual imposters, spiritual posers. You, you know this, don't you? I know you know this, that, that you can get your picture taken and you can have your uh, family in a church directory and not truly be a part of the family of God. You, you can pose, but not truly have your faith in Jesus. You, you can have all the outward expressions that should be marks of genuine faith, but you can possess those outward expressions and they not indicate genuine faith. I mean, you can be baptized, you can be a member of a church, you can attend that church, you can give to that church, you can serve on those church's ministry teams in the church and through the church and not, with all of that activity, actually have an intimate relationship with Jesus. Well, we see this. We see this in the first century. We see it in our own heart. Not only did Paul talk about this, but Jesus would talk about this. Matthew chapter 7, he just reflects upon this very truth that we need to heed when Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, that day of judgment, many will say to me, well, What will they say, Jesus? Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And then Jesus will declare to them all of those with all of this activity, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. All of this activity doesn't signal intimacy. Paul wants you to hear that our activity for God doesn't ensure a saving relationship with him. Well, what does? I'm glad you asked because Paul tells us very clearly in verses 14 through 15 that while 
our activity for God doesn't always ensure a saving relationship with him. God's activity for us ensures a saving relationship with him. It ensures access to a saving relationship with him. Again, verses 14 through 15, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that conjunction All of your activity doesn't always equal intimacy here, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What's Paul doing? Well, he's contrasting. He's contrasting the false teachers who put their boast in what they have done, and he says, no, boast in what God has done in and through Jesus Verse 14, far be it from me. That phrase there is the strongest Greek negative that Paul could utilize. It's absolute language that's emphasizing one prevailing point, which is do not boast in anything except the cross. Do not boast in anything except for the cross. Now, in the first century world, that Greco-Roman audience hears boasting in the cross, and it is absolutely strange to them to hear. Now, the cross in our world, it it can signify a fashion statement. It can signify no religious significance whatsoever other than just something to wear around our neck. And, and obviously that can occur. You can wear a cross and it can signify faith in Christ, but it doesn't have to be that. No one in the first century would have imagined doing that. The, the cross signified not a fashion statement. It, it signified the worst, most humiliating, degrading way to die. It was reserved for prisoners. It was reserved for criminals. If you were a Roman citizen, you were exempt from it because it was so humiliating. So to boast in the cross is to boast in the electric chair. It's it's to boast in something that we cannot imagine in putting our pride in. But notice that Paul says, don't just boast in how one would die, but boast in the one who died upon the cross. Boast in the cross of Christ Jesus. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, boast in the one Jesus who has lived, the God-man who's lived a perfect life, who died a saving death upon the cross. We boast in his redemptive work for us. So as Christians, we don't say, how faithful have we been? Maybe that can ensure our salvation. No, we think, how faithful has he been? We don't say, let me find all the good works that can ensure that I have a saving relationship with him. No, we boast in his perfect life, his perfect works that ensure saving access to our heavenly father. All of us in this room, we're going to boast in something. All of us in this room to boast in, Paul is saying, what, what do you put your glory in? What do you put your hope in? What do you put your trust in? All, all of us choose that. We choose that through the cultural streams that sweep us along, or we choose that consciously. But all of us have something that we're putting our ultimate hope in. And so the question is, what are we putting our ultimate hope in? What are we boasting in? Wright Thompson is one of the, I would say, just one of the greatest sports journalists that is living right now. He writes for ESPN.com. He has a wonderful book. It's a, a wonderful book that came out maybe about a year ago that is a compilation of his long-form journalistic articles that are addressing some of the greatest sports figures of the last hundred years. The book is entitled The Cost of These Dreams. Prevailing truth as Wright Thompson embeds himself and, and, and athletes like Tiger Woods and coaches like Urban Meyer, Michael Jordan, 
one prevailing truth is, is, is no matter the achievement, no matter the accolades, no matter how uh, you have done and how athletic you are, it just isn't for any of these men, any of these women, enough. It's not enough. Michael Jordan, one of the first uh, chapters in, in that book, um, The Cost of These Dreams, Wright Thompson is just embedded with him for weeks and weeks. He is now, as, as many of you know, the, uh, you know Michael Jordan, right? You know Michael Jordan. Of course you do. I mean, the, uh, it's not an argument. I mean, he's the greatest basketball player to ever live. But he still has to retire. Over the age of 50, he, he still, according to Wright Thompson, wonders, can he, can he come out of retirement to play basketball because something is just really, really missing? He's still embedded in basketball. He, he's the majority owner of the Charlotte Bobcats, but he still spends most of his time wondering and arguing who he would match up against and how well he would be. It, you still see a portrait of a person who still hasn't found what he is looking for. It's just a poignant passage. Michael Jordan is, according to Wright Thompson, just thinking about why he does all of this, all of this, all of this striving, all of this hoping, all of this doing. And, and, and he, he boils it down to this question that Jordan is asking, how can I ever find peace away from playing basketball? But even when you're the best, it's not enough. And, and if that's true... For him, boy, how much, your job is just not enough. Your heritage is not enough. The abbreviations that you can put behind your name and after your name, I mean, it's just not enough. Your bank account, it just never really is going to be enough. No matter how high you climb the corporate ladder, there's always someone that's climbed one rung higher than you. It's just never enough. St. Augustine would say that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And many of us in this room have, 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 have a hungry heart. A heart that is not satisfied in the trappings of this world, but can only be satisfied when we find our hope and lasting satisfaction in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. What are you boasting in? What do you find your identity in? Notice that Paul finds it. He finds it in the cross of Christ Jesus, which means that God's activity finally this morning, his activity ensures our identity in him. Go back to verses 14 and 15 here. He says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Why? Why does it not count for anything? Because we're new creatures in Christ. What Paul is saying here is that when we become followers of Jesus, that we, we take on a new identity. There's a metamorphosis that occurs. There's a transformation that occurs. That transformation starts now. When you put your faith in him, it begins now. But when is it finished? It, it is finished when you meet him in his second coming or you meet him in death. So you are a work in progress. I am a work in progress. He is, he is still working on me. You remember that old song, he's still working on me to make me what I ought to be? Took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth, and Jupiter and Mars. How great his mercy is be. He is still working on me. Do you know that? I messed up the lyrics of that song. Did y'all notice that right there? I couldn't get it. Danielle's here, so she caught my eye right there. You get the point of the song right there. So 
you, you get the, the, the point of the song. Most of that was right. Not all of that was right. But you get the point of the song. He's still working on you. He's still working on me. And the great news of the gospel is this, is that you are set free from the power of the world. Paul says in verse 14, that the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So the power of the world doesn't have supremacy in your life and in my life. Now, we're still tempted by the world. We're still conformed by the world. But it doesn't get the last word. The world's agenda for the follower of Jesus doesn't have the last say. So as a follower of Jesus, as a new creation in Christ, you're not powerless to the siren song of sin. You're not powerless to the work of sin in your life and in my life. So as followers of Jesus, we can confess pride. And through the work of the Spirit, we can choose to walk in humility. As a new creature in Christ, we can confess lust. And we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can choose to walk in purity. That anxiety, while it still calls... While disappointment still calls, while envy still calls, while doubt still calls, while jealousy it still calls, it doesn't get the last word. Struggle, yes. Define you, no. Who defines you? Christ does. What he has done for you and for me. I, I love the way that right before I preached, we, we sung this beautiful hymn, which so encapsulates the very words of Galatians chapter 6 here. And as Isaac Watts in the 18th century, he, he so well expressed what Paul is saying. So he gets the last word for us this morning. When we survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, our richest gain we count but loss and poor contempt on all of our pride. Forbid it, Lord, that we, that I, you, should boast in the death of Christ, my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them through his blood. And that final stanza, where the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life. Let us pray. So it is, God, as we come to you this morning, we are a grateful people. We don't need the holiday of Thanksgiving to give us an invitation to look back with gratitude. Every day that we are awake, every day that we have breath is the day that we get to join in your words through the Apostle Paul, to rejoice always, to give thanks in all circumstances. And so what is foundational for us is that our identity is in your activity in and through your Son for us on our behalf. Circumstances change. Accolades, they die down over time. Achievement cannot feel nor fulfill that deep hole, that deep void that only a deep and abiding relationship with you, Will. So I pray for any person that is here that is putting their hope in anything less than the work of Jesus. I pray that you would convict them this morning. I pray for those of us that we're prone to wander, we're prone to, to be distracted from the very life-giving relationship with you, that we would turn our eyes to your Son that we would look fully into his face and the things of this world will go strangely dim 
Lord, it is our prayer that even as we come to this table this morning, that you would prepare our hearts. So we pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen.